Welcome to the Venture Brothers Podcast at Graphic Policy Radio. Sorry for the delay. You may have noticed there was an election. And if you live in Florida or Georgia, there's still an election and you need to go get your ballot validated. But for the rest of us, welcome back to the show. Uh, we are your hosts, Elana Levin, a.k.a. Elana Brooklyn. And Stephen Atwell. Hello, Stephen. Welcome back. Hello. And you're joining us to have a look at the season finale of season seven of the Venture Brothers. The final finale episode is called the Safrax Protocol. We really see a number of the show and season's themes coalesce here. Things like the definition of family and defining your family relationships versus your own personal identity. Uh, your sort of your status in your career and your life goals and sort of uh, different meanings of kind of maturity and success. And a whole lot of Masons, the mysterious fraternal order blamed for a lot of wacky conspiracies and whose members included many of the founding fathers. And uh, also Barbarella, the 1968 Roger Vadim uh, movie. It's sort of trippy, sexed up space fantasy starring Jane Fonda, Anita Pallenberg, and Terrence Stamp, based on the French comic by Jean-Claude Forrest. It was actually the first widely sold sort of erotica comic. And you should definitely watch the movie. It's campy and sexy and completely batshit. Uh, I also recommend you listen to this episode. Sorry, you watch this episode of the TV show with the closed captioning. Because there's some lines from Dragoon and Red Mantle that I had a hard time making out otherwise. Yeah, that, I think that's sort of the downside with the sort of wacky old man voices is that they're deliberately not um, particularly loud or intelligible. <laughs> so uh, we start the episode um, with uh, a guild blackout team. Uh, teleporting into Ventec Tower in uh, a storage closet in the middle of the night. And this is what they stole that device for. Not to get rich in the Silicon Valley way, but just so they could sneak into shit and save time traveling up to Force Majora Meteor. Yeah, and I kind of like how, you know, one of the things I think that makes this season, you know, we'll talk about this uh, at the end of the episode, but like really cohesive is that, you know, they just do a lot of kind of continuing themes and, and callbacks. So here we get, you know, from episode seven, the uh, unicorn in captivity, the whole, you know, this is Dr. Venture's own teleporter that uh, that they stole and they're using against him. Uh, I also just love the uh, helicoidal agony maneuver. It's just a really funny nonsense military term. Well, there's like a helicarrier, right? I don't, I don't know. It, it, is it, it is deliberately nonsense. Helicoidal um, means a surface in the form of a coil or screw. Well, okay then. I was what that has to correct. do with agony or um, military maneuvers, I have no idea. Okay, but it doesn't have anything to do with either the sun or coitus. Duly noted. Uh, the line that I actually went to put cap closed captioning on for was dragoon or whatever saying we were going to pierce our ear like jimmy from roadhouse um and yeah that's the thug in roadhouse who beat everybody up with a pool cue and i just recently watched that movie it's a lot of fun yeah um definitely sort of a classic so uh rusty wanders into the uh storage closet because they're making noise uh and gets teleported up to the meteor majeure in his um tidy whities and he's met by Watch and Ward, who um, are, you know, pleasant to him, but then knock him out and order the team chief back to Ventec 
to secure Brock Samson. Good luck on that. Yes. Um, we also find out, uh, as the Council of Thirteen assemble, that um, Dr. Phineas Phage is not there because he had a teleporter mishap. And apparently one of the downsides of the teleporter is if you have metal parts. And this is where we got what I was sure was going to be a like twist at the end of the episode, but turned out to be a little bit of a fake out, although it might, mm. you know, set up for next season, which is like Brock was Brock has a metal plate in his chest. So that teleporter would be bad news for him if he if he goes through it. Right, and he might not know that. That's interesting. I think there yeah. will be something about that eventually. Uh, my other question, is llama bacon a thing? No. Okay. I mean, llamas are certainly a thing. Yeah, and their floofs are very floofy. Yeah, um, so the Council of Thirteen have dressed for the occasion. Uh, some of them are in guild black and red robes. Uh, Dr. Mrs. is dressed up like a medieval shepherd. And Radical Left is dressed up like... A princess in a video game. Like, I, I couldn't... <laughs> like, it, it wasn't exactly Princess Peach, but it was that kind of thing with, like, that enormous heart jewel on his chest and the, like... Yeah, it kind of looked like... But also sort down. of reminded me, like, of cards, like the queen as portrayed in, like, a traditional card Oh, like deck. Queen of Hearts kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. I would also just add that as a person who would much rather play a lot of the male roles in these things than the female ones, that it made me happy to see that they were having the guy play the princess because, like, you can just do that. It's make-believe. Yeah. And also there, there's, like, a – especially in a lot of these kind of – secret society frat initiate like drag is a thing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know i mean cultural historians and and anthropologists you know talk a lot about this is all um uh you know officially sanctioned inversion it's like you know in this special space you're allowed to do whatever and it's okay and it doesn't threaten your status um uh, one of the things that is, you know, they uh, they've mentioned one of the things that sort of like tipped me off. Uh, candidates, they say the candidates are hoodwinked in the ritual space, and I like I noticed the the plural. Um, I have to admit, I kind of overthought it a little bit. Um, I thought that um, I thought that there was going to be like a thing where both Rusty and uh, the monarch were going to be offered something. Oh. <laughs> but uh, instead, you know, um, it was referring to the monarch and uh, 21. Hoodwinking, like, I mean, there has to be some etymology of that word that's relevant here. Um, like, wearing, being, everybody is sort of like hooded and in secrecy. Um. So, ah, thank you, OED. So, um, it comes from the mid-16th century, originally in the sense to blindfold, so literally hoodwinked, uh, from the noun hood, i.e., you know, and an obsolete sense of wink as to close the eyes. So, a hood closing the eyes. And that's something we see in the symbolism of the actual clothes that they wear. Yeah. Um, so, they discuss this as an important tenning. It's interesting that they use sort of tending as, like, you know, an official term. Yeah, it took me a second to realize that they were verbing it. Yeah. What what levels has the monarch been before? 
So the monarch, back when he had his giant floating cocoon and his army of henchmen and all that, uh, was a six. And then in season six, when like he lost all of his money and um, you know most of his stuff got blew up on the Venture Brothers compound, uh, he dropped down to being a four. And mm-hmm. over the course of season six and seven. Uh, he got back to being a six when Dean paid him off. I think he got up another rank for being a, a big villain to uh, Augustus St. Cloud. So he's sort of, you know, speaking of this sort of topic of like status of in career and life goals, like he's, you know, definitely sort of been Willy Lomaning, uh this sort of vaunted status. It's just interesting to me because I feel like they've really grown the importance of these levels. It's been a huge point of this season and last. Yeah. And it seemed like he'd been in a much higher place earlier. Yeah, and was. Yeah. Uh, so we then flash from there to Hank's dream sequence. Um, where Hank is dressed up as uh, Lando Calrissian. Although, because he is Hank, he has a giant letter H on his belt. Um, and he is confronted by weird doll things, uh, from, well, from Barbarella, they're like literally the, even the blue doll that he says he's convinced is the leader of the dolls is literally in Barbarella when she lands, uh, in front of a couple of creepy kids who set their even creepier dolls with little metal teeth on to attack her. Right, and this strikes me as like a public hammer conversation about that scene in Barbarella. Um, that yeah. just, you know, they're like, you could just knock them over. Why don't you do that? Um, so, Action Man shows up wearing a what Hank thinks is a Chewbacca costume. But he's actually Mark Hand from Barbarella, the uh, character played by Ugo Tognazzi that... Uh, intro- oh, this is interesting. That introduces Barbarella into the magic of sex. So that's sort of a, a character who you could associate with a coming of age in the Barbarella story. And uh, Action Man plays the role of someone in this dream sequence who sort of helps uh, uh, Hank to grow up. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of sort of like different generations and growing up, like one of the interesting themes that's going on in Hank's whole storyline is it's about like these competing generations of science fiction. So, you know, Hank like knows the Empire Strikes Back, doesn't know Barbarella, Action Man is vice versa. Uh, And like there's something here about like different generations of fandom like, our nostalgia for the stuff that we liked as kids, even if it was, like, a little bit more, like, uh, even if it doesn't hold up on rewatch, uh, but also just, like, all of this stuff using the hero's journey over and over and over again. Totally. Um, And especially since the hero's journey is all about, like, growth and growing up, and it's all about, you know, a metaphor for maturity. Um... So definitely something we're going to keep our eye on throughout the episode. Um, so they argue over whether or not heaven is the Empire Strikes Back because Brat, you know, obviously Hank is like, oh, heaven is the Empire Strikes Back. And I, I appreciate that Hank is convinced that he's in heaven. Uh, but <laughs> Action Man has lived and seen a couple things. And he's like, oh, no, I think we're in purgatory and purgatory is Barbarella. 
I think Barbarella is probably heaven if you've seen it because Jane Fonda is pretty amazing in that movie. Right. Um, and then we go to, you know, what I think is kind of the weakest thread of the episode, which is, you know, uh, the blackout team leader, like, pops back into the closet to find that his men have all been killed and, like, Brock Samson grabs his throat and does a thing with the voice box. And it's like, you know, this is kind of... Uh, in some ways, kind of old hat. We have hmm. seen Brock murder minions in many, many, many times. But it's also his calling, right? Yeah. Like, if this is about getting people to understand yeah. what is their ideal self, then this is probably his. Yeah, Brock I... the Slayer of Men, Slayer of Henchmen. So, I guess my question is, like, the guild's comp- the guild strike force's competence level... It feels like these troops in some ways are more competent than the usual, but he takes them down nonetheless. Yeah, well, you know, you also get the sense from, like, watching Ward that it's like they're just there to be a roadblock. They're mm. just there to buy time while the, you know, ceremony happens. Um, speaking of which, then the ceremony starts. Yes. Uh, disclaimer, everything I know about the Masons is what I've gleaned by watching Matthew Barney's Craymaster Cycle, an avant-garde series of art films produced um, over the course of the 90s that I highly recommend. Uh, but also, again, these are not traditionally narrative films um, uh, or th- things that I learned by going to a performance of Mozart's The Magic Flute back in grade school. And then pretty much, and I think this is for you as well, whatever the heck Alan Moore was on when he wrote From Hell. Yeah. So... We are not experts at um, Masonic and, stuff. Yeah, and uh, specifically, there's um, uh, ah, here it is. Um, so one of the like his main uh, Alan Moore's main sources for a lot of the like weird Masonic stuff is um, do 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 uh, author Stephen Knight, uh, who is a Ripperologist. He wrote Jack the Ripper: The Final Solution. Uh, and basically tying this idea that, like, this graffiti that was written on the wall, um, uh, near, uh, like, a white, one of the Jack the Ripper murders, um, had to do with the sort of mythology of the Masons. Yeah. So basically we have a lot of literary and artistic references here. But yeah. not a great deal of uh, historical diligence. Yeah, as as we will soon see, the history here is completely wonky. Um, so the, the yeah, char- so I thought it was maybe called Safrax Davincium was maybe the name that of the role that uh, I mean, in actual initiations, uh, initiations for the Masons, like. This is not that far off from pe- what people do. It's a lot of undramatic play acting of like these yeah, mythological archetypes. Yeah, it's it's sort of ritual costumes. reenactment of a story. Yeah. And it's it's you know, this is not just the Masons, this is also, you know, the Carbonari in Italy did the same thing, the Illuminati, you know, back when they were actually a thing in Bavaria were a thing. It's just like it's it's, you know, eighteenth century play acting, really. Um so the weird history gets involved. So the monarch plays the role of Safrax Thurvingian, which is not quite right. Safrax and Alephaeus were real people. They were Gothic co chieftains who helped 
the Goths uh, win the Battle of Adrianople against the uh, Eastern Roman Empire. Uh, but Saphrax and Alatheus were Grithungian, not Theravingian. Um, which just sort of suggests that, like, the guild is kind of uh, playing a little bit fast and loose with the uh, history. Although, uh, Theophanes the Confessor was a real uh, early medieval uh, chronicler. Uh, the Fodorati were foreign mercenaries uh, working for the Roman Empire, although their level of eliteness varied. <laughs> um, and it's also peculiar because Saphrax and Alatheus were not Fodorati, as far as I could tell. Um, they were very much, like, fairly straightforwardly enemies of Rome. Hmm. So the kind of parallel here is that, you know, in the Masonic rituals, uh, the characters are reenacting this myth about uh, this figure called Hiram Abiff, the chief architect of the Temple of Solomon, who is assaulted by three ruffians who want the secrets of a master mason, which is also supposed to be a secret name of God. Um, and the th name of the three ruffians uh, is plays a big part in, the, in that theory that I was talking about uh, from Stephen Knight about Masonic influence in the Jack the Ripper murders. So... In the Craymaster movie, the role of Hiram Abiff is played by minimalist sculptor Richard Serra. Interesting. Um, I just so, think Saffrax and Alatheus are really fabulous sounding names. Oh, like, yeah. They're, I'm, like, I'm, they're just right on the nose, right? Like, yeah. I feel like just aesthetically, like, that's what you would call them. Yeah, they, they are very much like, you know, they've got good sounds to both of them. Um, so the first trial involves uh, sticking your hand into a hollow log to find a stone. Which I immediately thought about the Bene Gesserit from uh, Dune and how they make you stick your hand into the box of pain. And if you recoil too quickly, you'll like, be killed by the Gom Jabbar, which is the poison needle. Um, and, and I just was like, oh my gosh, I love it. And uh, to which my spouse was like, oh no, this is that scene from Lady Hawk. So apparently in Lady Hawk, uh, there's like some log you have to put your hand in and like Matthew Broderick's character like spins it rapidly. And, oh, that's why they were talking about Matthew Broderick. Okay, that makes sense. And um, something comes out of the log. But actually, it's funny because. Yeah, so, you know, what I thought was funny about this is that the monarch thinks that this is a Gordian Knot style kind of lateral thinking challenge. And it turns out it's just fairly standard hazing that they want him to touch poop. And then laugh. Yeah, it, it gets very like junior high. Sounds uh, about right. Yeah. So meanwhile, Brock, uh, dressed as a samurai, kills another minion, goes on this very overdramatic uh, monologue, in large part because it seems like he's just bored. Mm -hmm. Like, this is a way for him to deal with his boredom. When I saw him running around barefoot in sweatpants, I just was like, is this John McClane? And I definitely think that this whole, like, getting on the loudspeaker to make an announcement, like, that whole thing felt very 80s action movie to me overall. Yeah. And I, I also appreciate Brock saying, thanking them for their service to, quote, this glorious, your glorious service to this dumbass guild you joined. And, like, that's the most Brock thing ever. And he's yeah. doing it while, like, doing a self-aggrandizing speech. Yeah. Like, it's um... Brock at his most Brock. I also like the bit where he's just, like, pissed off at um, uh, Vatred for not uh, 
having a gun under the desk. Yeah. Because uh, that is, ab- you know, which is funny because, um, I mean, it used to be a big character trait of Brock's that he never used guns. Um, oh, wow. I feel like they probably just forgot. Yeah, or he's just changed his mind. Uh, so over at Stuyvesant University, quote unquote, uh, medical center, uh, Vatred is failing to talk his way past the nurse. Um, it's painful to watch. Yeah, but it does set up like a really important theme because he asks, uh, he says, I ask you, what is family? And that's like kind of a running theme of this whole show, but especially uh, this episode in this season. And it's funny because as much as like the way Vatred is hitting on the nurse at the front desk is disgusting, I do feel his pain. Like being kept from seeing a loved one at the hospital is really fucked up. Yeah. And it's also, you know, I, I, the one and thing real. that like, yeah. And the one thing that like in reflection makes the hitting on slightly um, less gross I emphasize slightly is that it's it's very instrumental. Like he's not doing this because he's like particularly turned on by the nurse. He is doing it to try to get into Hank's room. Yeah. We just need to have a system for recognizing that there's other kinds of family structures in the world and giving people access to their loved ones in times of need. Absolutely. Um, So meanwhile, in the room, uh, Dean is reading out his apology letter. Um, so you thought that this was... I feel like it's more of a confessional than an apology letter. Like, he is expressing that he's sorry to his brother, but it's, like, it's just the way he's listing it out. I think he's also just forcing himself to admit what he's done to himself. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what I like is that, the, like, the first four things are, like, Again, this sort of rooted in nostalgia and childhood, um, but are just like very ordinary things. Like he stole um, a watchamacallit, which is candy a bar, candy bar, uh, crisped rice and chocolate. Okay, I really want one now. Um, I've never been a huge fan. Blamed Brock. That's like a total sibling thing to do. Uh, number two, <laughs> this is my favorite. He broke Hank's bop it and doesn't regret it. And <laughs> I think we've all been there with like some toy that had an annoying sound feature that just like whoever made it did not think about how much, like how often the song would actually get played and hear how irritating it would be. Yeah. Oh God. Do I relate? I used to take the batteries out of my brother's toys. Here's where you can tell that both Steven and I are older siblings. Yes. Um, so number three on the list and number four, I think are like really hilarious. Um, Dean secretly likes 98 degrees, uh, despite having made fun of Hank, uh, for liking them. And number four, he was the one who borrowed Hank's 98 degrees CD. Um, I mean, I think this happened, I mean, not necessarily with 98 degrees, but I think like, Growing up, this is definitely a thing where, like, you like something that you know you're not supposed to like, that it's not cool to like, and so you you do this weird um, sort of double positioning. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's it's your guilty pleasure. I stole my brother's Ozzy Osbourne solo album CDs. <laughs> this, is, this is a confessional album altogether. Um... 
So, uh, meanwhile, back in uh, Hank and uh, Hank's dream, um, they argue about whether they're in heaven or purgatory. They argue about whether the thing that they're being pulled along by is a Minoc or what's the thing from Barbarella? Yeah, it's I, I don't know what a, it's like. They get carried, but they, they get pulled along by a manta ray led sleigh while triumphant music plays in the background. That's like a reoccurring thing in Barbarella. Yeah, it's like do 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 do, and you're being pulled by a manta ray along a pool of ice. Yeah, I guess the confusing thing is that like, Minox do look a bit like that thing. Like, it's easy. What's to, a Minox? Uh, it's from Star Wars. Oh, the okay. weird, the weird bat things that like stick onto the Millennium Falcon when they go into that uh, oh. cave mouth thing. Okay. Um. So, as they're arguing, Hank tells Action Man that they're not dead. That Action Man had a stroke uh, back in arrears of science and is unconscious. Um. And so now the question is like, what's going on with Hank? So Hank doesn't remember initially what happened with Serena. And this is like, again, a big theme of the episode is like coming to some, some revelations and how do you deal with those revelations? Um, but the, like the real big, big theme thing is that action man says that Hank is being a lot like his father, Rusty, who got clingy and stalkerish with Hank's mom, uh, the actress, Bobby St. Simone until she, uh, moved States, changed her name and, um, got a straining order and he's basically like, you know, in, in terms of like, yeah, telling him to grow up, he's sort of the, the super ego in a way, um, mm. you know, sort of saying you're not doing anything with your life, you know, so you're making everything about this relationship that really isn't that important. Um, of course who his mom yeah. is, is, you know, a legitimate point of issue. Like, have we heard about her before? So... There's certainly been a lot of talk about um, Rusty's mom. I think they've mentioned Bobby St. Simone as, like, someone that uh, Rusty is attracted to. We've never seen her, I think, because there was a scene in... Uh, I forget the name of the episode, but the one in which, like, they go inside Rusty's mind. Mm -hmm. And they end up talking to Rusty's id, and there's a whole bunch of women um, uh, oh, God, like on a yeah. rotating bed. And one of the women is like a blonde woman in a blue tracksuit. That might be Bobby St. Simone. I'm not entirely sure. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Her name definitely reminded me of Eva St. Marie, you know, the actress. Ah. So I at least most associate with North by Northwest. Right. Uh, so we then, uh, uh, they their conversation gets interrupted as they get jumped by a wampa. I don't remember any wampas in uh, Barbarella. So I'll let Star Wars take that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we then... Get back to Brock, uh, who gets who actually gets shot by a blackout squad guy, which is like it's it's rare that we see Brock actually get shot, um, mm. and he gets pissed that the guy uh, uses poison teeth rather than let Brock kill him. Yeah, um, and so you go over and you see Watch and Ward on the on the Meteor Major, and they're talking about the blood test that they did and they reveal uh that the monarch and rusty are actually blood related uh, do you feel vindicated court... yes well i mean i think the whole fandom <laughs> feels vindicated that like finally yes. this thing that they've been speculating over for years and years and years 
uh, is now like super duper confirmed and everyone knows about it. And thematically, um, I really like it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, again, what is family, you know? And, you know, this, I think gets back to like one of the, the running mysteries of the show, which is like, what is the source of the vendetta between uh, the monarch and Rusty? I just, I'm also have to wonder why, why they gave him a blood test. <laughs> yeah that's interesting like is it for insurance purposes is it so that like you don't accidentally end up killing a relative that you didn't know about i guess that's I don't what know. it was i i or you know i think do they are they stealing a sample for future use hard to say yeah do they want to clone him i mean that's a big part of the the superhero supervillain genre so as as peter parker can unfortunately attest to Ooh, I don't want Kane to show up in in season nine. That guy <laughs> so, was just confusing. Yeah. So we then go to the second trial where the monarch is carrying a goat and a chicken who are symbolic of something. Um, I have thoughts. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> you know, goats are often symbolized with fertility and randiness. Um, yeah. And then uh, chickens are um, delicious. Actually, so are goats. I'm not really sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, anyway, so he wants to, uh, cross a bridge that's guarded by the shepherd played by Dr. Mrs. The Monarch. Uh, and I love the sort of like, you know, school theater kind of thing of like, you know, breaking character to be like, it's me, you're doing great. Um, but also that like literally built into the ceremony is like a yo mama joke. Uh, and it's like a column response thing. So it's just... It's really kind of taking the piss out of all of this, you know, um, self-important ritual mumbo-jumbo. <laughs> and this is also uh, when you have the blindfold lifted, which uh, on Altheus when he comes, uh, Altheus, a.k.a. Uh, Gary, when he comes into the, uh, the field of light. And of course, that's a symbolism in any ritual of uh, enlightenment entering the realm of uh, the forbidden knowledge being shared with you and recognizing the world. Yeah. Its Although it's, it's really funny because here it's tied to literally like Althea's helped Saffrox cross the bridge by pulling the first made you look. Yes. Like it, all of this ritual and ceremony, you know, it's not even like villainy is too. This is like sub villainy. This is mm-hmm. like playground stuff. Um, but like, again, bringing that to the themes, um, we find out that like 21 has earned the right of a level four supervillain. And this really pisses off the monarch. Like he gets instantly jealous that like, this is his special day. It's yeah. his birthday. Why aren't people paying attention to him? And Rusty stole his fire truck. <laughs> I mean, which he did. Yes. But it's just like, you know, we, we definitely get the sense that like, you know, the monarch may be a couple decades older than Hank, but he is no more mature than Hank. Oh no. I mean, Rusty did steal his fire truck. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Totally in agreement. Um, so we then go back to the hospital and this is where like the letter takes it up a notch, which is so good. Number 57 is just, we stopped being close and like Dean points out that like, he's hidden a whole bunch of shit from Hank. Like didn't tell Hank that Rusty was a clone. Didn't tell Hank about the other helper. 
didn't tell him about Dermot, although that's kind of a mutual thing because, like, Hank found out about Dermot first and then mind-wiped himself. Oh, yeah. I mean, here's the thing, like, I I really loved this episode hitting this so much. I I can't tell you what moment has been as gratifying as this for me emotionally in a long time. Um, really, for me, honestly, one of the top moments emotionally on the show is, like, them recognizing how they have separated. And the thing is, it's sort of as this meta thing, because in the beginning of the show, their personalities were basically the same. They were the same character as each other. And over time, the show realized it would be more interesting if they started to have the two characters of Dean and Hank differentiate more. And then the characters began to do this between each other in terms of having their own plot lines and storylines, in addition to the fact that their personalities were more defined from each other. And um, what's interesting is, like, I really think that the, uh, that the reason why uh, Dean started hiding things from Hank was to solidify his own identity. He wanted to have some knowledge that was just his and some understanding of the world that was just his. And he, you know, he does think of his brother as being less mature than him, um, which is true. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately, I think his decision not to talk about these things is because he wanted to have something to himself. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at the same time, we get, like, I think a certain ambivalence about maturity because the next item on his list is that he's jealous that Hank isn't embarrassed about dressing up as Batman in public. And I think it, this gets to the whole question of, like, what is maturity? What is the point of growing up if it means, you know, on on the one hand, like, put you know, putting aside childish things. Yeah, we all understand that to be a part of maturity. But on the other hand, like, is that better than, you know, just admitting that you like the things that you like and that you're not going to be embarrassed about it because it's not adult? Yes, um, yes. It's sort and of like how a lot of people go through a phase where they don't let themselves watch children's cartoons anymore. And then once they're an mm -hmm. adult, they're like, oh, I can like this. That's fine. Personally, I never stopped watching kids' cartoons, but I've seen this about the rest of you. Yeah, and especially in a show that's literally about, like, you know, adults in their, like, 40s who are still playing at superheroes and supervillains. Like, it's a big question about, like, which is the right, right way forward? Is it to give up all this shit? Because it's not real and, you know, it's ultimately kind of uh, pointless and doesn't go anywhere. Or is it to be like, no, you like the things that you like. And, you know, you're being true to yourself by liking them. So real. Yeah. Uh, so we go from there to Hank's dream, where they're in the Upside Down Cave, part of The Empire Strikes Back. Which, again, that's like big, big... Um, uh, hero of a thousand faces stuff it's like you know oh the cave where you see visions that tell you you know where you're in danger but you survive danger and blah 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 mm -hmm. um and what i love is that like hank immediately goes to like D, D bard move number one which is seduce the wampa he's thinking what would lando do yeah and that is what lando do who seduce the wampa and sell you out to the empire <laughs> right um, and they then are all of a sudden saved by Dr. Phineas Phage because, because he, yep. Yeah. Sorry. Because he was in a coma from the transporter accident as referenced earlier in the episode. Right. Uh, and now, um, I guess either because of the weird genre rules of this place or whatever happened to him in the godforsaken transporter accident, <laughs> uh, his lower half is an ATAT -AT and he has wings 
from, from Barbarella. Yes, he's like Pygar, the alien and uh, the, the the angel from Barbarella. Pygar in the movie and is super hot. Phage is less so, but his voice actor James Adomian is amazing in this episode. I really was just like, oh, he is nailing it here. I'm actually a big fan of James Adomian as a stand-up as well. His, his uh, George W. Bush impersonation is legendary. He he played him in like the Harold and Kumar movie. He I've seen him live. He does the Sam Elliott. That's amazing. And he also just his straight up, his comedy is amazing. Uh, he has this bit about successfully picking up a guy in jail. Like <laughs> definitely check out James Adomian if he's comes to your town or, or look him up on uh, the, on YouTube. Last name is A-D-O-M-I-A-N. Okay. Uh, so we then go back to the ritual where, uh, and this is where we find out why um, uh, uh, Radical Left was in drag, is that he's playing the wife of Flavius, who Safrak supposedly seduces. Um, and what's strange about this is that, so Flavius... Julius Valens uh, is the Roman emperor who Saffrax defeated the Battle of Adrianople. Uh, he died on the battlefield. Like, that's what mm. made the Battle of Adrianople a big deal, is that, like, a Roman emperor was killed on the battlefield by barbarians. And it sort of signified, signified the sort of decline of the empire. Um, and here there's, like, this weird myth that's all about, like, cuckolding and you know, weird yep. role-playing. Um, it's 2018. Yeah, so... Uh-huh. Yeah. So Dr. Z gives him a real sword to use on his real enemy. In this ritual space, which is space, anything can happen. Which I just love that because, you know, yeah, they are doing this in space at their headquarters, but it also is a space where they can invent the world as they want it to be. Um and this is their collective fantasy. Yeah. And what I think is really cool about this choice that they give him is, like, it kind of cuts, to, you know, this whole thing that they've been talking about with sort of organized villainy, which is, like, okay, we know that, you know, from meta, you know, from a meta perspective, right, the reason why, you know, the Joker keeps, ex- you know, escaping from jail and Batman, you know, doesn't kill him and so on and so forth, in addition to the fact that these are fundamentally books for kids and you know heroes should not be murdering people is that like these are valuable ips that you want to keep going you don't want to have to invent a new villain every month because that's how you get the condiment king uh, <laughs> or or you know my favorite version which is like the the marvel version of this which is uh you know jack kirby is way behind on deadlines and just starts looking out the window for the, <laughs> or like on his desk for like shit what, what can i come up with okay you know, there's a construction site across the street. Boom, we get the wrecking crew. You know, yeah, yeah. That's that's how it goes sometimes. Um, <laughs> I but love it's them like so it's much. this it's this great thing of like what is the you know again like both in, within genre and without like what is maturity right? Is it like putting an end to this relationship that has defined you your entire career, or it's like no, let's keep this going because this is what I'm about, right? I like how you put it in the notes, which is Scott free murder or continue the grudge. Yeah. And one of these things is much more on brand than the other. Yeah. Um, the monarch uh, has, has been known to do both though. I mean, that is True. what happened with Dr. But Dugan. he's killed people in the service of getting to Mont to menace Dr. Venture. That is true. Um, uh, and you know, I mean, in addition to the weird thing with Safrax, like 
there's a whole psychosexual dimension to Rusty and the Monarch that goes, like, way beyond just the normal weirdness of, like, you know, Batman Joker level stuff. But, um, anyway, so... We, then we haven't cut really to... talked about that much. Maybe there'll be a good space it, for that for the next season. It's been a couple seasons. Like, you know, we're a long way away from back when uh, the monarch uh, had sex with a robot uh, with Rusty's face on it. Oh, God, that's right. He missed him so much. That's um, a thing yeah. that happened. Interesting. Okay. So we then back go to the to... Ho- oh, yes, the no, pee break. Yeah, which is just like, okay, it's a, kind of a funny moment. It doesn't really go anywhere. Uh, but it does, like, explain, like, so why hasn't Brock come to save the day yet? Well, you know, even bodyguards need to pee. <laughs> um, so we then go back to the hospital, and uh, Vatred has taken off his... Oh, sorry, is trying to... I got ahead of myself. Is hitting on the nurse. Um, which, you know, I'm generally not a fan of any of Vatred's expressions of sexuality in this show. <laughs> And we are back in time to hear uh, item the key item on that list from yeah. from Hank. Uh, number one twenty four. I slept with Serena, um, and you know this was something where I wanted to sort of take your temperature on, which is mm-hmm. he says he doesn't know why he did it. He doesn't love her, and he misses when it was just the two of them, which suggests that it's more sort of this was a little bit of Dean acting out to try to sort of provoke a response from Hank. Um. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, like, do you think it's better that, like, it's not a love triangle thing? Or... Yes. Yeah, totally. Okay. I mean, I do think there's the legitimate point you raised before, which is that, like, Dean and Serena have a lot more in common in some ways. But, yeah, I ultimately think that this is about his relationship with his brother. And also just, like, they're horny college students. Yeah. Um, but I really appreciate, like, I don't want this to be some deep rivalry between them over a girl. Like, that's not, like, she wouldn't want that either. And um, and I think that that would be a much less interesting story. Yeah. And, you know, it is really interesting that, like, in, again, getting back to this idea of, like, you know, maturity and identity. Like, for all that Dean is in some ways the the more grown up of the two, you know, he's going to college, he's trying to find a space for himself outside of super science, etc. Um, like he does kind of want to go back to the way he was in like season one. Because it was simpler and easier. Yeah. I love it. He says, I don't miss when it was just us, no Jared's and just grandpa talking to us in our sleep. I'm like, Oh God, no, this is true. Like he's scared of where he's moved to right now at this face in his life. And wouldn't it be easier to just regress in some ways? And yeah. then he says, I always liked your hair, which, uh, you know, I, so many kids who are natural redheads grew up thinking that their hair was awkward and wanting to be blonde. I, not a natural redhead, have nevertheless observed this in others. Um, <laughs> uh, so, you know, we also get the sort of, uh, we came into the world to get, it, it's like the opposite of we, you know, we go into the world alone, we, we die alone. Uh, you know, especially for the Venture Brothers, be- both because they're twins, they're clones, uh, they've died so many times, usually together, mm-hmm. um, and, like, he doesn't want to go on alone. Um, it's beautiful, really. He's like, we came into this world together, and he wants Hank to come back to him. Yeah, so Aww. we then uh, cut to the dream. There's a brief joke about different strokes and actual strokes. <laughs> 
Um, and then they go to talk about, which of course the other characters have not seen because why would they be watching that? Um, I love that they then discuss, like, they specifically went out of their way to find the Matmos from Barbarella. Right. Which is also when they get saved by, uh, by Pygar flying around. But, um, but yeah, so they're trying to define what is the Matmos. He's like, it's a weird lake. Uh, and what is the contents? Nobody really quite understands it. But in the movie, it's described as an energy that surrounds everything, to which, of course, Hank says, like the Force? Um, and I feel like the force is in a lot of ways much clearer than the Matmos because <laughs> I don't think he was on as many drugs, but sure. And it is an interesting, like they both could be described the same way. And it's that just, is, and both I, I think they yeah. were into different drugs because like George Lucas really had his cocaine phase, but you know, you're right. Certainly probably less hallucinogens. I think. Yes. But I love that they're, but, but the whole bit about like, oh, so it's not necessary to the plot. Oh, look, Metachlorians. Like that whole sequence yeah. of dialogue there that we just uh, butchered is fucking amazing. Yeah, yeah. This is some of the like best, like interlacing, multi layered pop culture shenanigans. It's um, like, the show, this episode is just like everything we love about the show. Yeah. And we then get this interesting question. Like, again, this, this topic of maturity is like, is Hank jumping into the force to like save them all? growing up or is like mortgages children and enlarged prostates growing up like you know this is kind of interesting i there's also a lot of jungian stuff in here that we've been talking about but particularly jumping into the lake like yet the lake being a, a, a jungian symbol for the mirror of self-reflection which is like literally what he's doing and he's going into the unconsciousness to emerge to the other side yeah, and it's also, like, this is pure Hero of a Thousand Faces stuff. Like, Hank is dying and being reborn. He's undergoing apotheosis. Like, he is becoming the, the greater self that he, you know, always had the potential to be all along. Um, you know, he's saving them all and possibly dying or whatever. And he also has his realization that, like, his girlfriend slept with his brother. So, like, that's his his grand realization about the nature of the universe. Um, right. It's something which is very concrete that just happened to him. Like rather than focusing on these fantasies, he's like recognizing, Oh, I remember the thing that just happened to me in the real world. Right. Uh, and although another potential uh, realization is, comes from Dr. Fage, who says that kid has undiagnosed ADHD, uh, which yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, given the way that we've seen Hank, you know, operate in the past. Um, so we then cut back to the hospital where Vatred has finally taken off his shirt. Uh, apparently he had the tattoo removed. Um, I think they just forgot. Uh, yeah. I mean, I imagine it's a bit of a pain in the ass to, uh, animate. Um, so Dean tries to get Vatred to go away. But for the sake of propriety, like he, it's not that yeah. he doesn't want Vatred there to support him. He he really feels how much Vatred cares. He just wants Vatred to stop like bothering the nurse. Yeah, and what's also kind of interesting is that like he, and the the person who isn't there is Rusty. Now I you know Dean doesn't obviously know that his father's been kidnapped, but like it kind of doesn't feeds seem into... surprised. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's not nobody's surprised, surprised that... that his dad isn't there. Yeah, um, so, um, we're sort of barreling towards the end of the episode, uh, Watch and Ward decide to go tell, um, 
about the secret that they've learned because Brock is preparing to take the teleporter. And this is like, oh, I thought Brock was going to go through, but maybe not yet. Um, and the monarch decides to go through, uh, not to go through with it because he doesn't want to start again alone. And like, you know, like initially telling the guild to go fuck himself, fuck themselves. Like, it's interesting because like he's, you know, he's finally gotten the brass ring, right? The thing that he's been fighting for for seasons but, like, at the same time, all of his frustrations about the guild are just crystallizing. And especially where he says, you know, you took my wife, and now you're going to take my best friend. Um, and, like, Gary decides at the same time, like, he's kind of rejecting this upward mobility narrative. He sort of says, look, I don't want to have to start again on my own. I want to, like, I don't have a crazy grudge. Like, I don't have, uh, I guess... Uh, he's sort of given up on the whole uh, Henchman 24 revenge thing. Um, he's he's just in it to be with his best friend. Um, and that's really kind of heartwarming. Mm-hmm. And again, this is sort of the decision not to kill Rusty. It's sort of a deflation and res- that oh, yeah. in, of tension that is mirrored, I think, in the marriage episode. Where you feel like they're the trial, you know, when when he, you think he's going to be like tested, him versus Doctor Girlfriend, and in the end, it's like, oh, you guys are the perfect couple. I'm going to marry you guys, and so this is very much in line with how the shows how the show resolves tension. Yeah, I feel like at some point though, I'm going to need the show to get to a moment of actual final conflict, and yeah. I'm fine with this not being that, but I'm expecting it eventually. Yeah, well, I was especially going to say, like, after the, you know, the guild says, like, oh, it's all a final test, you pass, congratulations. Watch the moral and Ward... is doing it together is better. Yeah, um, like, Watch and Ward come in and tell them, and we don't get to see it. Like, they're denying us catharsis. Like, we get the nice bit where you sort of, you know, you gotta be kidding me from outside the meteor. Um, but, you know, we don't get to sort of see him finding out, and we don't see any Or Rusty's the... face, yeah. Yeah, we don't see any of the the fallout from that. So I guess, you know, that's a good setup for the like. Is next season supposed to be the last? Is that the? I, I mean, the word probably. I think ah. so. Okay, I I don't know if it's been announced, but like in terms of like getting to that final confrontation, it's like okay, now everybody knows everything. Now we can, uh, you know, have it out. Um, and then we get like a really great after credits bit. Mm-hmm. Where we get the classic, you know, hospital fake out that Hank is gone. He's not dead. He's just jumped out of his hospital bed. And then we cut to see Hank on the street giving a voiceover narration, which I would not have caught in a million years. But as we're watching it, my husband turns immediately to me and it's like, Dark Man. He is literally reciting the closing monologue from Dark Man. I thought and then 100% we went to it watch it. No, it's the closing yeah. monologue from Dark Man when he disappears into the crowd. Ah. I mean, maybe it also happens in Batman, but like we rewatched that scene from Darkman. Gotcha. No, that's I think literally it's probably, how it ends. Yeah, it's probably word for word almost. Like, wait, from Batman? No, I was gonna say from Darkman. Yeah, no, from Darkman. He's walking away into the crowd, and she thinks that she sees him, but it's really a man that looks like him, and not actually her ex-husband or whatever it is. Like that whole sequence is literally from Darkman. But of course, Hank decides to grow up by being Batman. Yeah. Um. And that's kind of interesting. Like that, again, a very ambivalent statement, right? You know, in some ways, this is Hank reverting to 
you know, past behavior and, like, this kind of the most immature thing possible. But at the same time, like, this is the thing that Dean envied most about his brother is that, like, you know, Hank is going to be 100% Hank and he doesn't give a shit what anyone thinks about it. Yeah, I wonder if it's setting up that maybe his future is he's going to be another, like, protagonist in, like, the guild versus OSI slash whatever good guy organizations there are type structure. Yeah, he maybe. He wants to be a superhero. Um, so, that brings us to the end of the season. What a season. I love it. Yeah. There was really only, like, one episode that I feel like was a letdown, and it wasn't even, like, bad. It was just not that great. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think that this season has really seen the show be a force, you know, of what we've wanted. There have been so many amazing moments of character development, comedy, references, beautiful art, full of New York City-ness. You know, this, 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 and this final ep- uh, episode of the season is really a perfect capstone to it. Yeah, I was going to say, like, the, you know, in terms of, like, any complaints I've heard about this season, I think there are things that are really going to disappear once this is something that people primarily encounter on DVD or streaming or whatever. Mm-hmm. Because to me, like, season six and seven flow together very well you know we were talking about this early Mm -hmm. in the season about like you know the whole thing that you know the first you know three episodes of season seven are really the finale of season six um but you know i think this has been an amazing season i mean the right the level of writing is just astonishing um so thumbs up the production values yeah yeah. Well, great. You know, in terms of the upcoming season, I know you mentioned before, like, oh, God, is Dr. Mrs. Pregnant? And I really hope she isn't. But thinking about it longer, I think she probably is. Yeah. And I could see it sort of fitting into the whole, like, thing about, you know, generations and legacy and so on and so forth. Yeah. I just hate the trope of, like, women getting pregnant with, like, not having had a conversation with their partner. That's... Not really a thing well, that happened. Explicitly having had a conversation that was the reverse. Yeah. That, like, yeah, that shit, was, you're right. That was episode one, is we both said we were people who don't want children. Wow. So, who knows? Yeah, I just, like, I feel like that's, I think that, do I think that Dr. Mrs. would get would go and have a kid if the monarch didn't want to? Yeah. But would she have it without having a conversation about that? Like, that's just not, no, I don't think that's realistic. Yeah. Um, so that's something I expect to have happen. Any other predictions for season the next season? Uh, I mean, I think, you know, my main prediction is I like, I think we're going to get to the whole theme of like brothers and like, what is the, what is the, the vendetta between the monarch and Rusty all about? I suppose it's like, you know, what has he been missing all this time? I mean, I guess that's not true, actually. I was about to say, what he's been missing all this time is having a brother, but that's not true. He did have a brother. He had Jonas Jr. Um, but that's what the monarch has been missing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that's what we're going to get to. Well, thank you again for doing this podcast with me. I'm excited to do uh, season eight with you when the time comes. And, and hopefully I'll have you back on graphic policy radio to talk about some piece of popular culture, uh, in the near future. I'm sure. Absolutely. And in the meantime, you can always check out graphic policy, graphic policy.com. 
You can find me on Twitter all the damn time at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn and Stephen. Uh, you can find me at Stephen Atwell on Twitter. Uh, you can also find me at Race for the Iron Throne on uh, Tumblr and WordPress. You have another uh, big essay coming out? Uh, let me see. So at the moment, uh, I'm trying to get to halfway through A Storm of Swords. Uh, but uh, Martin's new book, uh, Fire and Blood Volume 1, is like coming out in 10 days. So that's going to be a lot of content I'm going to have to work through. Excellent. Well, like, I can't wait wait to read it. Like, you're like the guy on a song of ice and fire. So. Oh, thank you. It's a fact. It's how I know you also. <laughs> so so <laughs> thanks, you guys. And I'll leave you with the final sign-off for this season of the show. Okay. Down? Yeah. One, two, three. Go, Go Team Venture Brothers, Brothers. Podcast. Podcast. Right. Podcast. Yay! <laughs>